Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm Paula Thomas, the founder and CEO of Let's Talk Loyalty. Today's episode is hosted by Phil Rubin, the founder of Grayspace Matters, an innovation and growth advisory firm in the US focused on driving profitable growth. If you work in loyalty marketing, make sure to join Let's Talk Loyalty every Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday to hear the latest ideas from loyalty experts around the world. Capillary's loyalty solutions offer AI-powered next-generational technology, making them a catalyst for enabling meaningful human connections across the globe. The platform is deep and wide, yet flexible enough to meet the needs of any company looking to take its customer loyalty to new heights. Visit capillarytech.com now to see how they can transform your loyalty future. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. I'm Phil Rubin, Principal of Grayspace Matters, and your host for today's episode. I'm very excited to host my first podcast for Paula, and we'll kick things off with Professor Daniel McCarthy from Emory University's Goisweta Business School. Dan's academic work focuses on applying leading-edge statistical methodology to contemporary empirical marketing problems. Key examples relevant to those of us passionate about loyalty include the causal effect of actions and events on customer purchase behavior, CLV, customer lifetime value, and CBCV, customer-based corporate valuation which is also reflected in his work with Professor Peter Fader from Wharton and their firm, Theta Equity Partners. Dan and Peter's first company, focused on CLV, Zodiac, was acquired by Nike in 2018. Dan studied at the University of Pennsylvania, earning degrees in both system science engineering and economics, followed by a PhD in statistics. For loyalty marketers, Dan epitomizes the idea not just of data-driven marketing and decision-making, but more importantly, in applying data at the intersection of finance, marketing, and customers. With that introduction, let's get to talking with Dan and learning from his incredible wisdom. Professor Dan McCarthy, my friend, it is great to see you. How are you? Yeah, it's great to be back. I feel like now, uh... The last time I'd seen you, you were guest speaking to my class, and now the tables have turned. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it's a it's a great story that I I mean I think and and thanks again for having me in there and 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 letting me share some some thinking with with your students. Um, you know, I think we first met when I hired some at least one or one or two of your students. Who then who then introduced us mm -hmm. and uh you know somebody who studied finance undergrad and ended up in customer marketing i really really appreciate you joining me here especially on this first uh this first native uh podcast that i'm getting to guest host for paula so in, in that vein uh, let me say welcome and offer up the first question which is the standard let's talk loyalty first question. And that is, Dan McCarthy, what is your favorite loyalty program? And, and I'll give you 
the option of your favorite loyalty strategy if you don't have a favorite loyalty program, but I'm sure you do. Yeah. Now, this is an example of me not eating my own cooking, but uh, if I had to say there was one, I'd probably say um, Dash Pass, at least the one that's most interesting to me right now. Um, so yeah, happy to kind of dive into why, but uh, yeah, they're they're kind of an interesting one. Well, tell yeah, please tell me. Yeah, so I'm starting to do this uh, research on the impact of subscriptions on consumer purchase behavior. And uh, one thing that we're finding through this work is that um, you know, these uh, these subscription programs from the restaurant delivery companies that they really have an effect on people's spending uh, in in restaurant delivery. You know, not only for the focal firm, but also for the category as a whole. So. What we're finding, obviously, is as you'd expect, you know, now people are basically prepaying for their delivery. Um, you know, you, you could think of it as getting the delivery for free for a subscription fee, but you know, those are kind of just they're effectively the same from an economic standpoint. And so if you're going to prepay for your delivery, you know, you're going to place more deliveries. Um, but the other thing you're going to do is obviously um start to become more monogamous with the the delivery firm that you have the subscription for. So if you sign up for Dash Pass, you're going to be doing some more DoorDash than than Uber Eats. Um, so yeah, so certainly there is you know kind of share of wallet shifts that it does. But what we're finding too is it just gets people to spend more in the whole category, which in theory can be good for everybody in the category. And that's kind of a cool a cool finding. Um, I'd say you know, that that is really kind of the litmus test when you think about you know what is a good subscription or a good loyalty program, it's one that actually causes people's behavior to change, you know, that they wouldn't have just done what they otherwise would have done. You're not giving away goodies to people who would have bought for you anyways. And uh, and we really do find that to be the case here. Yes, changing behavior translates into incrementality, right, from a CLV standpoint and, and beyond. And it is interesting because other, I also think about it from the standpoint of habit formation, right? And how do you not only create these new habits, but especially with the subscription model, those habits become more sustainable. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. Yeah, subscription creates regularity, you know, that you kind of form, you, you habituate around that activity more than you would if every time you wanted to do it, you kind of had to actually think about it. You know, that now it's just kind of, you're being forced to do it on a periodic basis, which um, yeah, just kind of leads to more enduring effects. The unconscious behavior of not having to make choices, which has a lot of relation to behavioral economics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know this is something we may talk about a little bit later, but uh, dovetails perfectly with the COVID, this COVID impact research I've been doing. So yeah, if you want to talk about that later, we can save it for then. But certainly, uh, yeah, that's right up right up the alley of of some of the main results from that 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 piece of research. Well, let's 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 call the audible in audio form and say, yeah, let's let's just shift to that because you know, in my mind, especially thinking about it from a habit standpoint or you know inertia, right? Which in my mind has always been the best loyalty strategy for certain customers. Certain, especially certain high value customers, right? Don't don't screw that up mm -hmm. if if you're sort of in charge of managing those customers. But obviously, it's more it, it's more than cliche to say that COVID disrupted all kinds of behaviors. 
so tell me, tell me, you know, give every, give us an overview of, of especially the thesis that you had going into it, or was it just purely, this is a wildly uncertain situation and outcome. Where is it going to lead to and for who, mm-hmm. for which companies, which brands? Yeah, it really was the latter. You know, when we were coming into the work, and by we, it was uh, myself and this PhD student from Columbia, uh, Shin O'Blander. So again, he he gets the credit for doing all the the super heavy lifting on the work. Um, but you know, we, we didn't come into it with kind of a um, with a die being cast. You know, we didn't have uh, a view that you know we we wanted to confirm that it was true. Um, it really was more. You know, we've had this highly disruptive event, and what we want to know is, you know, how has the effect of this event changed these categories over time? And um, and so that was really kind of the main thrust of the work. Um, and so yeah, we didn't have any strong prior, you know, coming into it. You know, I think we had some ideas as to what the results might look like, but um, you know, I think you know we're pretty big on just letting the data speak for itself. And um, yeah, and and what it basically showed was that. In most uh, in most non-subscription categories, you know, so that would be kind of the bulk of restaurant delivery, um, you know, in-store apparel, in-store restaurant, you know, that, that sort of thing, uh, online grocery, air travel. Uh, the effects basically went away. You know, so if, obviously the effects were very large uh, up and down initially. You know, so within the first few months, uh, sales in categories like restaurant delivery were up like 100, 120%, you know, over what they would have otherwise been. But by June of 2022, in most of those categories, the effects went to zero. I mean, or they were not statistically significant from zero. So, so it's kind of a big nothing burger. And again, this is June 2022. It's kind of before all of the economic uncertainty that we now have. And, you know, one can say like, Maybe we're falling below baseline now, but it's not because of COVID. It's because, you know, of economic uncertainty. Um, yeah, at that point, um, you know, we were still okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's kind of uh, pretty striking that it had so little effect, you know, uh, over the longer term, both positive or negative. Again, we had many categories that were thwacked and others that were tremendously boosted. Uh, but where we saw big effects that, or reasonably big effects that intended to endure more was in subscription. And so meal kits, that whole category was up, you know, a relatively small amount at the onset of COVID. And then the gains just continued to to grow as we move forward in time. So by June of 2022, I forget what the exact number was, but I think it was something like a 45% lift, you know, that people are spending 45% more in that category. And in gyms, in-store gyms, obviously the category was totally hosed right after COVID started because no one was going to the gym, but um, kind of quickly picked back up again, but then kind of settled at like negative 30%, that there was just 30% less spending in the gym category, even as of June of 2022. So, yes, I think both on the positive side and the negative side, it seems like there's just something different about subscriptions that um, leads those behaviors to be more persistent than, um, yeah, than than non-subscription transactional type uh, behaviors. What I've seen a lot from companies who are where you have you have companies that are in transactional businesses that want to figure out how to create that persistence of recurring revenue with a subscription 
And then, of course, you also have the same sort of quest for incrementality from for subscription models where you either have to enhance the subscription value proposition, raise fees or create tiers, or add some transactional layer on top of the subscription. Is your work delving into to those two pieces or are you isolating those like pure subscription from from pure transactional businesses? Yeah, we don't really disambiguate except to the extent that um you know, it's kind of fair to say, hopefully, that uh, the gym category that we study, that it that is kind of pure play, mostly pure play subscription, um, and that you know the the non subscription categories are mostly non subscription. Um, yeah, I think meal kits would be another example. I, I'm sure that they have some transactional type sales to them, but uh, the bulk of the revenue is going to be coming from the recurring payments that they get. Um, and I think one interesting example, you know, to your point, that is kind of in the middle is at-home fitness. And so we studied that category as well. And that's going to be your Peloton, you know. Um, and they're they're kind of funny because before the pandemic, they were doing about 75% of the revenue through the hardware, you know, just through the, the bikes that they sell. And and then, you know, the rest came from the, the subscription payments. But again, the subscription payments are like 44 bucks a month, whereas the bike is like, you know, $2,000. <laughs> so you need a right. lot of subscriptions to kind of, you know, equip, you know, to be the equivalent of a bike. Um, and so you, you can kind of think of them as being a, a non-subscription business that requires a subscription. And so in some sense, we found that they were, I won't say like the worst of both worlds, but in all the subscriptions, we saw this relatively more muted, like shock upwards at the onset, you know, because people don't panic into a subscription typically. Um, and we saw that here as well. Um, but they also didn't get a whole lot of longer term lift like you would expect from a subscription because there were a whole bunch of people who kind of pre-bought their bike. They, they pulled forward hardware purchases that they would have made later on, but because they made them earlier on, then they hit this wind pocket, you know, as we kind of move to, you know, to, to June, 2022. Um, and so we actually inferred kind of no significant lift uh, at that point, even though you kind of would have expected it just from the subscription uh, stream itself. It is interesting. I, at the, during COVID, I was, I was a bond working on the loyalty report, which of course, one of the measures and, and this, this measure has always struck me it, it's always been stuck the measure of top box satisfaction with loyalty programs consistently in the mid 40s you know plus or minus a percentage point or two dropped precipitously with covid and the question was is this finally the catalyst for people you know detaching themselves from loyalty programs especially mm -hmm. because of their homogeneity and 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 the cost and improper measures, which which we'll talk a little bit about in in, in a few minutes. Um, but it same thing. It kind of reverted and became the same sort of nothing burger that you that you characterize with the general business level. It, it reverted right back to the mid forties uh, for twenty twenty two. Yeah, I think it uh, it's consistent with a lot of the literature on habit formation that. Yeah, people can form habits, but yeah, nothing is forever. <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, you, you try, you try, but uh, you know, habits can kind of be on the order of months, but it's only kind of a rare few where they really endure for very, very long periods of time. Yeah, kind of back to that inertia as a great loyalty strategy mm-hmm. for, for a lot of brands and a lot of categories. Well, that's the other thing that we don't disambiguate is we can't really say why, why that that lift is there. We could just say spending is higher you know, but we can't really point to exactly what brought it about. You know, we can decompose the spending into order frequency and, you know, basket size and things like that. Like, oh, you know, people tend to spend more when they bought, you know, but we can't really look to the underlying mechanisms, you know, the underlying behaviors that were really driving those changes. And so I think that there is a natural tendency to want to ask, like, what is it that was causing those changes to occur? And, and we can't really say, was it inertia? You know, was it, people putting this part of their life, you know, uh, on autopilot. Now they're just much more habituated. I think with good survey questions, potentially you could have done that, but you know, survey data, you know, your mileage may vary. (laughs) And so. Well, and, and literally and figuratively, you can't have a lights out control group uh, to, to study the, the impact of something, the magnitude of of something of universal effect that, that COVID had on on customer purchase behavior yeah that's the whole uh that, that's also why I, I, I love this paper it's just such a good paper um but part of what motivated is the fact that there is no control group with covid you <laughs> yes. know there's just some things in life where everyone is treated quote unquote and so so what do you do then you know if, if you really want to know the causal effect of something and so we have this cool method that uh, under some conditions, which we can spell out and validate, you know, to make sure that those conditions are met. But under those conditions, we can be able to give you an estimate of the causal effect, even when everyone is part of the treatment group. So, um, yes, yeah, so we're, you know, I think that it's a, a useful methodology in other settings as well, but clearly, you know, applies in spades with COVID. Well, and the other thing, and I'm sure you, you've you've seen some of this I probably hesitate to call it forecasting, but there are certain people. I mean, there's a little bit like another commonality that we talked about a few minutes ago in terms of people believing, you know, things have changed. They're never going to be the same, right? It's it's either Mark, you know, you either paraphrase Mark Twain, uh, you know, the, the, the my death has been greatly exaggerated or public enemy, don't believe the hype. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of people believing that the kind of seismic events like COVID are going to happen with more frequency. And so that I think is a really, int- I mean, not that we want those kinds of things to happen, but that's where your work is going to be also incredibly valuable as people need to sort of insulate themselves from some of the, you know, separate the frequency for, from the noise, so to speak, in terms of dealing with uncharted situations like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, certainly all of those would be you know, if there was some other event that kind of hit everything all at once, like the global financial crisis. Um, yeah, that, that that could happen more frequently. But I think what also can happen is you, know, you think about Twitter and you know, they just kind of roll out a subscription for everybody. And so even though it's not a global pandemic, it is something that kind of leaves no control group for Twitter. You know, we can't 
compare those people to other people, you know, like to some other set of Twitter users for which there's no subscription. Um, there's just a lot of things like that. You know, if you do a blanket price increase, anytime that, that sort of thing happens, then you know, again, it's gonna be it's gonna be global for your firm. <laughs> and so yeah. you kind of end up in a similar, you know, a similar conundrum. My initial I have two initial reactions to that. One is I don't know that there's this cogent strategy at Twitter in terms of the move towards subscriptions and how they're managing blue check boxes or, or you know, blue check marks versus versus others. Um, but the other thing relative to price increases that I think ties into some of your work is, I mean, extending the Twitter idea to Tesla and what they did in terms of taking these, these I think the median price de- price cut that they took across their product line was $10,000. And so then you, you start to get into, and I know, you know, I did go back and listen to your first podcast with Paula and the notion of contribution margin and, 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 you know, this was not from some customers, this is going to be for every customer going forward. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that'll be interesting to look at certainly longitudinally. Yeah. Yeah. Contribution margin is a crucial part of the equation and, uh, people love to focus on revenue, but, you know, I always say, you know, revenue doesn't put food on the table. <laughs> It's profit that puts food on the table. So, um, yeah, I can't, can't ignore those costs. I, I had this 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 quote from a client years ago that has stuck with me, and I probably say it all too often. It was from Henry Silverman, and he, you know, who was like both a, you know, pretty interesting financier CEO, did a lot of acquisitions, built some big businesses, had some challenges. But he he said to me once in a meeting, "If the answer is not money, rephrase the question." Um, which, which gets back to the intersection of finance and marketing and customers and the idea of using customers as the denominator to look at financial performance as, as you're evolving your work beyond customer lifetime value and customer-based company valuation into using that, not just on an ex post basis, but looking on an, an ex ante basis for forecasting. Talk a little a, a bit about about sort of the genesis for that work and where that's going. It, it seemed, I mean, perfectly obvious and certainly something that we in the loyalty marketing business do in terms of building business cases. We're, we're at least the work that I w- used to do. We would build bottom up, you know, we'd look at customer data or customer cohorts and use that to build a baseline to forecast from. But you're obviously doing some things with with a bit more sophistication, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's been a really fun area. Um, but yeah, I think the basic idea is that you know revenue has to come from customers placing purchases. So you know, here we are in marketing, spending all this time uh, building these models to predict future repeat purchase incidents and future you know new product adoption, and then just kind of leaving it at that. And uh, it's not to say that those are unimportant, but you know, on their own, um, they can be uh, not quite as useful for being able to generate these, you know, whole company insights. And so I think the idea 
you know, is to, to kind of have one plus one equals three that by bringing these models together, you know, acquisition, retention, ordering, spend, and contribution margin, um, that it can allow us to actually get to, you know, quantities that are going to be super important and relevant for companies as a whole and can actually, you know, move, move their stock prices. And so you know, it's just kind of powerful in a way that each of those individual elements uh, couldn't be. But the fact that we had so much work being done in the area, it gave us the the raw material, you know, the models to be able to, to do that exercise. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, it, it's an area, there's been uh, some work within the academic marketing science literature before ours, uh, that was kind of proof of concept, you know, to kind of show, you know, we can think about the world this way. Um, but I think, you know, the, the work that I've been doing, uh, I've had kind of two papers with uh, Wharton professor, Peter Fader, just kind of laying out the framework and then um, showing how we can specify relatively simple models that validate very well, um, you know, that this can actually move markets. You know, we've had a number of examples of work that we've done where, you know, we kind of put out the numbers and uh, either the stock moved right away or, you know, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we were able to see, you know, we we ended up kind of being right more than we were wrong. So, yeah, so it's been, um, you know, it's kind of a right at the intersection of marketing, finance, and statistics. Uh, all three areas are areas that I love. And, uh, and so, yeah, to be able to kind of just pursue all of them at once in the same topic. It's just been great. When the implications for that work is so, it they're so profound and, but, and also so intuitive. If you think about, you know, where does revenue come from? It comes from customers. So you have these discrete units that can be aggregated or, or disaggregated and useful tools not just for measuring what's happened, but but obviously now, like forecasting what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. There, there seems like there's more adoption from the investment sector than from the companies themselves. Yet you think like for the companies, there's so much opportunity in terms of forecasting, like supply chain management and how, you know, every, you know, Retailers either have a great quarter, or they have a terrible quarter, and they have bloated in. You know, you, 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 there are all these things that are sort of quote unquote explained away in earnings calls. Mm-hmm. Where are you seeing the most interest in in this work outside? You know, outside the academic sphere. Uh, both, I'd say, hearteningly, both the investors and the companies have been uh, stepping up to the plate in a pretty, um, pretty encouraging way. So. Uh, the use cases do tend to be different. Um, with the investors, so far, it's primarily revolved around diligence. Uh, it's primarily been private equity firms. So again, we think that these, ironically, a lot of the work has been for public companies. You know, we'll kind of take this public company, they put out these disclosures and their investor reports and K's and Q's, and we kind of take all that data and then, you know, say the fair value is X, you know, but you can kind of see the price moving every single day. Um, and those examples are a lot of fun, but what we found is that hedge funds, because they can trade in and out of positions, um, they're not quite as, at least they're not as interested in having a vendor, um, you know, do four weeks or three weeks of intensive work for a very high price point. You know, I'd say that the fact that they can date and not marry, um, just makes them a little less 
inclined towards that sort of a model. Whereas a PE firm, they know they're going to write, you know, a 50 million, hundred million dollar check, you know, something very, very big. They're going to take a control position in this company and they won't be able to sell it. In theory, they may not sell it for, you know, three, five, seven years. And so, so they're kind of forced into a marriage. And so our sort of work can really help them get comfortable with an investment up front. Uh, in a relatively short amount of time in a competitive bidding situation. So the PE firms, you know, I think that they're, you know, they've been, uh, they've been quite interested in a way that uh, the the hedge funds are catching up to. Uh, venture capital, um, similar story. Uh, I think because they're earlier, uh, obviously seed stage, they may not have a whole lot of revenue yet. And so they wouldn't be the greatest fit, but certainly as you move uh, later stage, you've got the cohorts again. So yeah, again, I think this work can be really relevant uh, in that setting. When you move to corporate, the the use cases become um, either more around the M and A that they're considering, like maybe someone's looking at them, uh, or they just want to know how healthy are we. You know, so I've, I'll often talk about how um, you know companies, in the same way that we should get annual checkups to know what's my cholesterol level, what's my vitamin D, you know. Um, yeah. How, how's my red blood cell count? You know, whatever. <laughs> uh, we want to know those figures because, you know, that could mean the difference between life and death potentially. Um, but these companies, it's as if they know that, but they don't know where they stand, you know? And so do I have a clean bill of health or not? I don't know. And so you know, to be able to offer them that, it's just something they need to know. Um, so I've I've started getting you know more like inbound interest for for from people who are saying things like I'm coming into a company my first hundred days and I want to know the lay of the land you know tell me the state of my business um, that I think makes a ton of sense um, so we're seeing you know more businesses that are kind of interested in just getting that health checkup for their business from a customer perspective um, inevitably you get a lot more questions. Uh, that revolve around Zodiac type use cases. So again, Zodiac was my previous company that we sold to Nike. And um, and there it was much more, give me the CLVs of every single one of my customers and then tell me other things about them. And then we can do value segmentation. We can look at the, cus- the, the customer acquisition channel that they were acquired through. You know, we can find where I'm getting the most bang for my buck for my for my budget, you know, whether that's acquisition budget or, or what have you. And, um, and that's something that obviously they get a lot more value out of. Um, they, they kind of hone in on a lot more than the PE firms do. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that has come up a few times has been uh, financial planning and analysis. And so this is a little similar to your inventory example. Um, they want to know where, where revenue is going to be next year, you know, and how are we going to get there from a customer perspective? And yeah, oftentimes, you know, it's kind of put the finger in the air. Oh, it seems like our category is growing by 5%, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we would say, well, how are you going to get there from a customer perspective? <laughs> you know, what does that imply for like customer acquisition growth and how are you going to hold on to your customers? And uh, I think it could be at the very least a very nice complimentary, you know, sanity check. And so, yeah, so that, that's just kind of, I know I'm going on long, but hopefully that gives kind of a sample of, you know, kind of where we're seeing interest in from, for what use cases. Yeah, no, I'm sitting here smile with a big smile on my face because that's exactly what happens. And um, well, what, uh, what practically speaking, unless you have this, you know, the new CEO coming in and saying, "Okay, 100 
first hundred days, I got to figure out what's going on here so I can manage it. Mm-hmm. FP and I might do that, but then they go to marketing and say, okay, marketing, you need to drive this amount of growth next year. So which, which gets into a whole other topic um, that I want to get to in a minute, but outside of those use case, I mean, I think there's definitely a move for the, where more companies are being customer centric than perhaps they have been in the past. Um, but they, but they're definitely lagging. And it seems from everything I've studied, and I, I, I imagine you pretty violently agree, the job of management, I mean, things like CLV and, and then by extension, using customers to, to derive enterprise value is the ultimate scorecard of that management team's ability on their, their, their overall ability to manage the business because they have to manage the business ultimately in terms of customers. Mm-hmm. So I've always sort of thought about that. And I, I imagine you, you, that's, you fiercely agree. And if you, if you don't tell me, cause I think it'd be interesting to understand. Yeah. I think there are some, some leaders out there, quote unquote leaders, because I think the real leaders want to know that they actually don't want to know the answer to that because they're either not organizationally equipped to do that. They have to acknowledge that there's this big gap in terms of work to do to get to that point where they can manage the business through, you know, through customer management and customer measurement versus you know, classic as like when I was in loyalty consulting, well, we can create or redo our customer marketing and loyalty program, or we can add two stores. And what are we going to do? And it's an easier leap in, they think in short term to just add two stores. So are you seeing more of that, that change to, we've got to really think about the business with with sort of the customers, the denominator like that? Yeah, we are. Now, obviously, we've got kind of a biased view because the people that I'm right. speaking with are probably, you know, different from your typical executive. <laughs> but uh, but certainly of the people that we're speaking with, you know, they're kind of, they're getting religion. So, yeah, so that has been very heartening to see. But certainly I, I can totally identify with that example that inevitably, you can end up in these trade-off situations where either I'm going to put my money towards investing for the future, you know, by building up capabilities and experimentation platforms and things like that, that allow me to kind of do more over time, or yeah, I can do things that help bring in revenue tomorrow. And, um, and inevitably, yeah, I think that that's always going to be attention, you know, that um, I've got my revenue, you know, consensus revenue for my firm is X. I'm a little bit below it. I know I shouldn't be acquiring these customers because they suck, but (laughs) got to hit the revenue target. So, you know, I'm going to bring them in. Um, My hope is that as as people kind of wake up to the importance of this, it's not like all that's going to go away. Yeah, I think those are all, you know, being able to kind of manage both the short term and the long term is important. But to be able to continue to compound growth over the long term, yeah, I think, you know, people are understanding that there's just a lot of opportunities that can can come up in the future if you were to make these investments now. So, you know, don't put all of the investment 
in today, you know, could be staged over time and we can find ways to um, do it incrementally. But, you know, I think ultimately, you know, people understand that there's just a whole different set of tools that they can be able to reach into when uh, they make some of these investments. So you get you get calls from private equity companies. We'll we'll broadly categorize it. You get calls from investors, and then on on kind of the client side, in the you get calls from new CEOs. You get calls from FP and A. Mm-hmm. Do you get calls from CMOs? Oh, we do. Yeah. Okay. Good. It runs the runs the whole gamut. <laughs> And that's uh, again. That, that's the nice thing about CLV is, you know, traditionally CLV was the CMO thing, you know, or, or really maybe the VP of marketing analytics, you know, but someone in that area, you know, that they they tended to be the ones who were using those words first. Um, so yeah, I think hopefully this is kind of democratizing what they've been talking about for a while. Um, but certainly the fact that you know they were kind of the original owner. If there was an owner, it was kind of kind of them that uh, yeah they still you know, kind of are, are interested in this. And, you know, we'll often say that this is a great way for them to get buy-in for these concepts that they've been talking about for quite a while now. Um, but maybe the, it hasn't been getting the attention it deserves. You know, it's the Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> of, uh, you know, of the things. Yeah. So, so now, hey, we've got a way of kind of legitimizing it in a way that it hadn't been before. And yeah. so, yeah, so they're very incentivized to kind of, uh, learn the lingo, you know, be able to kind of speak that language, and uh, and then you know present it to the executive leadership team. Well, you said the key word when you were talking about measuring C- CLV, and that was if they were measuring CLV, because that 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 I think is is the bigger challenge, and 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 it seems like there's such a bifurcation, and it it does well, it kind of blows a big hole in the efficient market hypothesis. Because so much of this information is not known, including in, in you know primary, secondary, public, private equity markets. Uh, but that's the job you guys are doing is is making the market more efficient by by bringing out these these metrics and these insights. Yeah, certainly. If the transaction logs have not been available, then as long as one can kind of buy into the notion that there is some information value to understanding unit economics, which hopefully, you know, people would agree, um, hadn't been available before. Now that's increasingly being available. Um, yeah, I think that is, you know, an argument for this, just making capital markets more efficient. It puts a, a new opportunity. I think you, you referenced this a few, a, 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 a minute or two ago, it creates a real opportunity for marketing to 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 address that Rodney Dangerfield reality in so many organizations. I mean, I just I just heard about somebody who took a job with a big box retailer, and he was heading up he was heading up customer loyalty, and the CEO basically said, "You're just an expense." <laughs> I won't mention the person or the or the retailer. That's a big that that's not going to end well for probably both of them. And you have this interesting perspective, unique perspective, because you're seeing it on the in the private sector, but you're all you're also working at Emory with students at you know undergrad, graduate, postgraduate. You know, talk a little bit about what you're seeing kind of in the classroom and on campus and both the interest 
in marketing versus, you know, everybody who used to just want to go into consulting or go go into investment banking or now private equity. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, well, let me I'll stop there and then I'll ask you another question. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been great. I'd say that I had started this course uh, just a few years ago. And, uh, you know, whenever you start a new course, there's this uncertainty about the course. There's uncertainty about the teacher because I was this new teacher, Um, you know, and so you don't want to put your toe in the water. You don't want to be the first person to put your toe in the water. It's a customer adoption issue. You know, just (laughs) do CBCV on my own CLV course. Um, So we had good, uh, good enrollments, but, you know, certainly, you know, the enrollments have gone up since just because now you've got the word of mouth going, you know, there's been a few years of it and, you get the, the the previous year's students, you know, saying things about it to the the current students, um, and uh, yeah, it's just been a ton of fun to teach. Um, I'll, I'll typically spend like the first fifteen minutes just talking about things that have been going on um, recently, or just things that are more recent, and that's how we can kind of take some of the things that we're talking about that could seem more theoretical and just say. Yeah. You know, let's look at this. Let's look at Peloton. Let's look at Casper. You know, let's look at Blue Apron or Warby Parker or you know, there's just tons of examples that we've brought up. Vori, um, and just think about them through this lens. And uh, and I think that that brings a, a new reality to it and also kind of really gets them engaged. And they can think about, you know, for the companies that they've been working for, you know, sometimes people will be have been talking about CLV. Oftentimes what I found is that they'll say, um, that the companies are intrigued, you know, like they've, they've danced with the idea. They haven't really done it yet, but they've heard some things. And so, um, and so when the students bring it up in these interview, you know, in these interviews, it's great material, you know, because they have something that they can kind of bring to the interview that the company hasn't really done yet oftentimes. Um, but it's kind of interested in, you know, so yeah, so it's it's been good, hopefully for them too. You know that it's been helping them kind of get uh, get their next job. Um, but yeah, it, interesting to hear their stories and how they kind of grapple with how it can apply to you know the company that they've been working they've been working for or are contemplating working for. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, I think about it just from your students that I hired in the past, but also, I mean, you're the more you do this, the more you're going to build a powerful alumni network out there that's going to be out in the marketplace advocating for this approach to, you know, strategic planning, execution, measurement, and all those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it's uh, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, a friend of mine posted on LinkedIn the other day was lamenting the fact that people come out of school. He's obviously not hiring enough Emory students, but people come out of school and he, and he, he, he was, he was, he was lamenting that they can't write. And uh, I added, or do math, um, which got a few got a few likes on LinkedIn. It's it's such a critical skill, not just to be to apply and understand those concepts, but also for logic. So, are, are you seeing that? Are you you know you, you're probably a little bit insulated in a top school like Emory? No, oh, no, we see it here. <laughs> It's not, yeah, part of it's, it's not the student's fault. Yeah. You know, I think that oftentimes, you know, you got the poets and the quants. And so they come in with, you know, they just come in with different levels of background. Yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly there will be some students where I'll start talking about mixing distributions and beta distributions. And, 
they said beta what you know <laughs> so um yeah so then the onus is on me to kind of make it all relatable even to people who don't have quite as much background in this stuff but uh yeah certainly i, I try to make it such that people with kind of introductory statistics whatever that class is at the university that you're at that with that they'd be able to kind of get it done um but uh but yeah certainly in terms of where they're coming from even with you know this class having been a selected set it's an elective course they don't have to take this course so naturally the quants are going to want to take it more than the the poets do that uh, there's still a surprising amount of poets that end up uh, end up in it and i'm grateful to have them <laughs> but uh yeah it's uh for sure yep that's good it, it gives you reasons for optimism both on the future and and marketing's future yeah i mean i think yeah I'm always want to say, you know, the goal is not to to be perfect, but you know, just to, to get better. Yeah, and if yeah. you're getting better, you do that for a while and you can be great, you know. So and yeah, I, I take a look at these poets and they're getting a lot better. So the fact that they're receptive to it, yeah, you know, I think to me it speaks volumes that uh, you know, they're kind of willing to go outside their comfort zone to to beef up in an area that they haven't historically been strong in. Um, I think, you know, that's just super encouraging to me. So yeah, we need we need more like them. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, Dan, uh, uh, unless you have anything to add, and I think that was pretty darn good, a great, great sense of optimism. Uh, I really appreciate you joining me today. And uh, I could ask you questions for the next few hours, but I don't know that you have that time or, or uh, but but we'll do it again, hopefully. Yeah, I would love to, but we'll, we'll save that for episode number three. <laughs> All right, deal. Yeah. But, uh, Dan McCarthy, Professor Dan McCarthy, uh, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks so much. And yeah, if it's helpful, if you're interested in this stuff, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, yeah, I tend to, to gab about this a lot, as you do. Yeah, so I think um, if, if you're kind of interested in these topics, yeah, please, uh, please don't be a stranger. This show is sponsored by The Loyalty People, a global strategic consultancy with a laser focus on loyalty, CRM, and customer engagement. The Loyalty People work with clients in lots of different ways, whether it's the strategic design of your loyalty program or a full service, including loyalty project execution. And they can also advise you on choosing the right technology and service partners. On their website, the Loyalty People also runs a free global community for loyalty practitioners. And they also publish their own loyalty expert insights. So for more information and to subscribe, check out theloyaltypeople.global. so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like us to send you the latest shows each week, simply sign up for the Let's Talk Loyalty newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and we'll send our best episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget that you can follow Let's Talk Loyalty on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, we'd love for you to share your feedback and reviews. Thanks again for supporting the show.